This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey everybody, Elon here. You're about to listen to a live episode of Keeping Carlson that we recorded on Wednesday evening, July 6th. Unfortunately, we had an issue with our recorded audio not working, which means that we have to use the audio from Blab, which isn't up to our normal standard of quality. So I apologize in advance for the quality being not exactly what you'd expect, but I still think it was a really fun episode, and you're going to enjoy it. Near the end, there's a bit of a syncing issue, so there's a a little bit of Brian and I talking over each other. I think you could work through it. We'll make sure this doesn't happen again. I still think you're going to like it. Enjoy the show. Carlson, världens bästa Carlson, 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 hoj här kommer Carlson, 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 ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson, killar jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, yes! Thank you, everybody, for tuning into the latest episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys on Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. Oh, my God, a lot has happened in these past two weeks. I'm your host, Elon Dubrowski. With me, as always, Brian Calm. Hey, Elon, and everybody listening, of course. To think that two weeks ago, we were so, so excited about, like, the three scraps of news we had been served, like... I'm trying to even remember what those issues were. The Ducks signed Sammy Vatanen. Wow. And Randy Carlisle was their coach. Oh, and well, Frederick Anderson in Toronto was a big deal, but Cam Ward in Carolina, we made a huge deal of none of that matters anymore after what has transpired in the time since. Yeah, it has been so crazy. Brian, you forgot about all the teams that signed rights of different players, the negotiating rights. That was pretty cool. <laughs> Keith Yandel ended up signing with Florida after all. I still actually do keep my opinion from last week that this signing the right, or once they trade for the guy, they're signing the guy. Like, has that not yet happened? Anyway. Tell it to the Sabres and Jimmy VC. I'm yeah, told that's, that's how his name is pronounced. You mean Jack Eichel's best friend, Jimmy VC? <laughs> Jack Eichel's best friend, Jimmy. <laughs> all right. So since then, so much has happened. You guys all know there's the draft. There was that crazy half hour on June 29th where a million things happened. There was free agent frenzy. Before we get into all of it, or some of it, as much as we can in an hour show, let's mention that we are presented by DauberHockey.com. If you have not been convinced that they're the best fantasy hockey website out there over these past couple of weeks, then you haven't been paying attention. They have had a new article for each signing, like breaking down every single move, who it helps, who it hurts, and there's ramblings every day where Dauber just keeps giving more and more of his opinions, some of them a little bit controversial, which we'll get to soon, but always interesting, always helpful. you got to check it out. You can catch up on everything at DauberHockey.com. Yeah, most recently, a lot of people ask us for prospect news, and we're very open that that's not our forte, but DauberProspects.com has you covered there. They just release a very thorough and detailed and democratic 
rundown of the final fantasy rankings for draft eligible prospects uh, from this past draft. So all the guys who got drafted, they rank them in terms of fantasy value, giving their explanation why from a variety of different sources. It is a must read for anybody wondering about the future fantasy value of these guys. If you're in a very deep league or you have a prospects draft in your league, this is must read stuff. Yeah, Dauber Prospects, definitely check it out. We'll talk about a couple of prospects this week. By the way, Brad, I didn't even mention, we are live right now on Blab, so thanks to all the people in the chat room who have joined us. We're excited to have some conversations with you as we go along. We'll take some questions at the end. But Brian, let's get into the number one fantasy hockey headline of the week. There's so much, but why don't we go to the place where we've probably talked about the most on our patron-only Facebook group. Let's go to Edmonton. Lots of stuff happened there, and it all started on that crazy day when we started to see on Twitter, looks like Taylor Hall's been traded, and then you see, oh, coming back as part of the package, it looks like Adam Larson is going to be coming back for Taylor Hall, and then we waited, and it turned out that was the deal. Taylor Hall for Larson, a defenseman on New Jersey who got, what, like 20 points last season for Taylor Frickin' Hall, a guy who's been a point-per-game player last year, over 60 points. Everyone sort of blew up right away. Thought it was the dumbest deal ever. Since then, some opinions have been changing or there's been some discussions. You know, the Oilers obviously needed defense and have a lot of offense. They drafted Pooljoo Jarvi, Jesse Pooljoo Jarvi in the draft, which they weren't expecting to be able to get. So maybe him along with obviously Connor McDavid and Ryan Nugent Hopkins and Jordan Everly and all their amazing forwards, young forwards. Maybe they thought they could afford to get rid of one of them and get a defenseman back but really is that the best they could have done so obviously we're going to break down the fantasy impact of this but first of all brian just do you have a general take on this trade yes and i have not changed my opinion in the slightest since the trade went down big mistake big mistake by edmonton i think if you're going to trade for adam Larson, you've got to give up a lesser asset to do it like maybe someone like leon dry to make it happen if that's the guy you're targeting if you are dangling taylor hall out there it's either you get an elite top pairing established defenseman, or you don't make a deal. You know, Dauber has come out and said that he thinks that Oilers are going to do good. And he thinks that Larson might be a little bit underrated that, you know, he was a high traffic, I believe fourth overall a few years ago. And even though he hasn't been the most offensive defense, it was 18 points actually last year in 82 games. This is on a very defensive New Jersey Devils. Like no defensemen were getting any points on the Devils last year. There's that guy who went to San Jose now who who did okay, Schlemko. But yeah, like you can't even name a New Jersey Devils defenseman. So maybe Larson on the Oilers could make a difference. I don't really want to start with Larson though. But yeah, like I guess <laughs> let's talk about Taylor Hall first because he is a huge deal. This guy, you're you're nodding. You like this? He got 65 points last year. The year before that, well, 38 and 53 games. That kind of sucked. But the year before that, 80 points. The year before that, 50 and 45. So he's been a point per game player. Does this hurt though? Now that he goes on New Jersey, who you know he could have been playing last year. He was playing with Drysaitel, and they did really well. There's always the possibility he could have lined up with Connor McDavid. We'll talk about his new line mate soon. But what do you think about the fantasy prospects for Taylor Hall moving to New Jersey? I think they're okay. You know, you say that he's moving away from Drysaitel, and maybe that's cause for concern. But the real cause for concern is Drysaitel not getting to play with Taylor Hall. Because Taylor Hall, as I started the segment by saying, is an elite forward. He's a no-doubter in terms of his talent on the wing. He has 328 points in 381 career games. He was one of the top 10 players in the league this uh, over the last three seasons in even strength points per 60. Last year specifically, he was sixth in the entire NHL in even strength points scored. That's not even a rate stat. I'm talking counting stats. Not only does he put up points, but he does it 
by scoring goals and creating them. He was third in the league last year in primary assists. And Elon, I want to play a little game because when I say that somebody did really well in primary assists, your first thought is, well, who's he setting up? So I'm going to tell you the other guys who are around Taylor Hall on the list of top primary assist getters from last season. And I want to see how quickly you can name their line mates, how obvious it is that they did have someone really good to play with. Starting with the league leader okay. last season at even strength, Evgeny Kuznetsov. Um, Nicholas Backstrom? No, that's dumb. Ah, Burakovsky? Oh, no. Wait, Justin Williams? Give you your heads up. <laughs> Am I wrong? Ovechkin? Yeah, he played a good chunk of the season no? with Ovechkin. Okay. Well, Backstrom... Well, wait, do you know No, well, Backstrom was injured. He was able to put up... He got oh, 13. Right. He got a third. Uh, sorry, less than a third of his even strength points with Ovechkin. But we talked about him as being an elite setup guy who could set up... You were right, Andre Burakovsky and Justin Williams. So, okay, maybe this game isn't off to a great start because he actually is a good example of somebody like Taylor Hall who makes something out of, well, average things around him, although Taylor Hall never did play with Alex Ovechkin this season. Okay, Blake Wheeler. Brian Little? Sure, yeah, David Krejci. Uh, oh, man. Uh, <laughs> this game is too hard. I should have given you a heads up. I'm sorry, David Krejci, well, he got to play with Brad Marchand for quite a bit and was able to do well. Louis Erickson also took turns. Patrick Kane had Panarin. Sidney Crosby had help. John Tavares had Oak Poso. So okay. a lot of these guys... Well, I just want to know, what, what's your point here? Are you saying that it's good that he was among the leaders of primary assists? Okay, what I'm saying is that Taylor Hall was able to create with lesser players than a lot of the guys who are ranking high in primary ah. assists he didn't get to play with as good players, but he made them that good. He played with Leon Dreisaitl and Teddy Purcell for the majority of his ice time. He played only 75 minutes with Connor McDavid, and he was able to notch 24 primary assists, good for third in the league in that category. The next most of any Oiler was Benoit Pouliot with just 11 primary assists. So not only was he leading his team in it, he was the only guy who seemed to be able to do it. And of course, we know Pouliot did get to see some time with McDavid. Hall put all those assists towards leading the Oilers with 65 points last season with very little help on the back end, very little help from his line mates. And his line mates, like I started the segment by noting, Dreisaitl and Purcell, their numbers tanked when they played away from Taylor Hall. But there is a bit of a, con- a contradiction happening here because I'm saying he's an elite forward, but I'm saying he also scored 65 points last season, which is not an elite number. And one piece that's missing from that puzzle is power play production. He doesn't have those huge power play numbers that those elite point producing forwards tend to rely on to get their numbers up that high. He does a lot of things right and everything looks good from what he does, but he still hasn't tacked on that power play production that would turn him from being a quietly high-end score into a much noisier one. I would think if now that he's on New Jersey, like on Edmonton, there were kind of like two lines, two power play lines. Like Connor McDavid had his line with like Eberly and, you know, whoever he was playing with, uh, Benoit Pouliot. So maybe now that he's on New Jersey, he's going to be guaranteed to get a lot more power play time. You're starting to make me think maybe things are better on New Jersey because not only, you know, might he get more power play time, but when, once you consider that he was playing with Teddy Purcell and Leon Dreisaitl on New Jersey, he's going to maybe get like Adam Henrique or Kyle Palmieri, who I would say are just as good, if not better, than those other guys, at least currently. Yeah, I mean, Jerry's still let on Dreisaitl, but if we just look at Dreisaitl as a player with and without Hall, he's 
Probably not much of an upgrade over whoever Hall gets to play with in New Jersey. New Jersey, a lot of people say they don't score as many goals, but on the power play, they were fairly successful last year, being a top 10 team in power play conversion efficiency and total power play goals scored. So a big deal next season is going to be can Taylor Hall convert on the power play with whoever he's with because he's like a top 20 guy in point scoring if you look at all situations, including power play time, but he's like a top five or six guy if you look at just even strength scoring. So he's got to bring his overall point totals up there to really be considered and accepted, as I've been pushing him for years, as that elite level forward. Yeah, that's really interesting. So now I'm, I'm intrigued. And then New Jersey and the situation for Taylor Hall is interesting because not only is he maybe not screwed as maybe you might have thought when you initially saw this trade, but also there's other players on New Jersey who maybe get some more fantasy relevance. Like you take a guy like Adam Henrique, who did pretty well last year, especially before Mike Camilleri got injured. And then Kyle Palmieri, they did well. They actually formed a really good liner. I believe it was Cam- or Cam- Palmieri was on the second line. But, you know, Taylor Hall's going to play with those guys like maybe so you imagine this would be really good news this does this boost the value of an adam henrique i guess not a camillary because they would go on one of the two lines but i'd imagine henrique's either going to for sure get camillary or taylor hall so that's good for henrique i guess yeah henrique is now guaranteed a winger remember mike camillary was on an incredible scoring pace last season i think it was close to like 65 or 70 point pace then he got injured and henrique didn't have much left to play with although lee stempniak was still with the team at the time. It's too bad he's still not around to play on the right side on whatever line Taylor Hall might end up on. Um, but Taylor Hall is essentially, he's looking at getting Adam Henrique or Travis Zajac as his centerman. Uh, the right side is not strong right now. I'm once again finding myself in a situation where I see Bo Bennett on the depth chart and I want him to rise and succeed. Uh, I know I've said for like two years now that he's someone who deserves a chance in Pittsburgh's top six. They essentially said, look, We didn't keep him because every time we wanted to give him a chance, he got injured and injuries hampered his play, even even when he was healthy enough to get out on the ice. So I'm still holding out a little hope that Bo Bennett can be a reasonable line mate for Hall to play with. Again, it doesn't take much to upgrade guys like Purcell or Dreisaitl over the last season. We did talk about how Purcell has been a very good complementary player in his career. And there's not really anybody else on the Devils roster that has that, like, journeyman complimentary resume uh, the closest might be Travis Zajac who has had flashes of production especially back when during the days when he was paired with Parisi in any case I think that my whole spiel about Taylor Hall being able to create offense he's going to be able to take care of himself I think he's going to be good for 60 points hopefully 65 and if power play production goes really well and if New Jersey keeps building their roster for future years I think he can still get 70 points even in New Jersey well, I mean, when you think of New Jersey and how no one gets points there, Michael Camilleri had 38 points in 42 games last season. So that is a 74-point pace. Too bad he got injured, but it is possible to get points there playing with Henrique. So we'll see. Oh, you have something to say? And then yeah, I have something to say. I mean, Camilleri did it last season, but I remember we had this exact conversation in August or September before the season started. I said, Michael Camilleri is going to lead the New Jersey Devils in scoring, but what's that worth? on the New Jersey Devils. And we settled around, you know, 55 or 60 points for Camilleri. He exceeded those expectations in the shortened season that he played due to injury. We all knew he was going to get injured at some point. Uh, But it's worth pointing out that even though he just did it last year, that doesn't make it an easy feat. You know, we pegged, like I said, the the top devil to score about 55 points, give or take five. 
in the last four seasons, only Patrick Eliash, Yarmir Yager, and Mike Camilleri have managed to score at a 60-point pace over at least 40 games played. So Taylor Hall has his work cut out for him, but I also am certain that Taylor Hall is better than all three of those guys who were on the wrong side of the hill in, the, in their careers, while Taylor Hall is still in the midst of his prime. Yeah, so it'll be fun to watch, and definitely we'll be watching all throughout the year to see who gets to play with Taylor Hall. If it's not Henrik, like you said, it might be Travis Zajac. And also, I read, I think it was in a Dauber rambling, he said, watch out for Pavel Zaka, who might make the team, and maybe he's the kind of guy who can climb up the depth chart. Maybe if Camilleri and Henrik keep their good chemistry going, they won't want to break them up. Hall goes to play on the other line, and maybe his centerman could be Zaka. Oh, something to watch. Probably don't need to draft him, but keep him, you know, available if he makes Full the dis- team. Someone is asking Full disclosure, uh, I used to pump up the tires of New Jersey Devils up-and-comers Matthias Tedenby and Jacob Josephson. Neither of those guys have panned out, so I'm actually holding off till I see something from any young Devils prospect in terms of production, although Zasha, or however you pronounce his name, Elon, is probably the best bet that the Devils have had in a long time to make an impact stepping in in his rookie season. Yeah, and you could read more about him. Like we said, go to like Dauber Prospects or something, or we'll just have to wait and see how he does once he makes the team. Let's go back to Edmonton now. Okay, is Adam Larson the number one defenseman on this team? Like, is he going to be the guy playing top power play minutes with the likes of Connor McDavid and company? Or is it still going to be like Andre Sekera as things stand? I guess this offseason's not over yet. They can still make another trade. But assuming things stay the way they are, where does Adam Larson land in the depth chart? And like, you just give us a quick summary. Like, we've never talked about him on the podcast before. It's so like, who is this guy? Does he have fantasy relevance? Like, should we be looking to draft him in any league? Okay, one, one question at a time. The overview of who Adam Larson is. Elon, you said he was drafted a few years ago. He was fourth overall back in 2011. And you might say, well, you know, he's still a prospect. He's still coming along. Here are some names of other people who are drafted in the top 10 in 2011. You can tell me if he deserves to have more time to develop or not. Ryan Nugent Hopkins, Gabriel Landeskog, Jonathan Huberto, Ryan Strom, Mika Zibanejad, Mark Scheifele, Sean Couturier, and Dougie Hamilton were the top nine picks that year. And Larson was one of them as well. Those guys have all managed to establish themselves one way or another, save for maybe Strom, who was who we're still waiting on. And Zibanejad, it would be nice to see a little more from him, but I don't know how much more we're going to see from him. A very good top nine, it, I should add. But the point I'm trying to make is that Adam Larson is turning 24 this fall. He's not a youngin who is all of a sudden going to blossom into a brand new player or change his stripes. He's very likely just who he is. And that so far in his career has come out to being 69 points in 274 career games. If you want to know what that comes out to on a per season point pace, that's a 21 point season. If he plays all 82 games, he has no power play goals in his career four power play assists. So all of this Begs the question, what were the Oilers thinking? What's their plan for him? I mean, I think they probably are looking for someone who is defensively capable. And in New Jersey, you know, he deserves some credit for the minutes he played. He played heavy minutes and took on some tough assignments and did reasonably well in them. But my concern coming into this season, you said, Elon, is he going to be able to quarterback the power play? I kind of get the sense that the Oilers might try to have him in that role. And I don't know what's going to happen if they do. I mean, it's not like there's a huge depth chart to climb in terms of offensive defensemen in New Jersey that, you know, Larson just couldn't surpass a guy like Keith Yandel or Oliver Ekman Larson or Kevin Shattenkirk on his depth chart. Like it was there for the taking with 
Andy Green and Merrick Zlitsky and Damon Severson. So I don't know that there's much offensive potential here. The Oilers might try and get him on the power play so they can maybe thump their chest a bit and say, see, we, we knew what we were getting. We knew he was a very good offensive player all along. Granted, Larson hasn't had a ton of opportunity. And I would say the New Jersey power play is a little anemic, not a bunch of you know big-name scores on it. But I did mention they were in the top 10 last season in terms of efficiency. So I don't know what role they're going to give him. If it were me, I wouldn't put him. Like For me, he's like a middle-pairing guy who can play big minutes, step in when you need him. Uh, I'd still be looking to, say, Oscar Clefbaum as my ideal guy to step up into that QB1 role. Okay, and then, man, there's so much to talk about, and we've only talked about, like, this one trade so far. But, I mean, we have all summer, I guess, to get through everything. We have the list. We've got it all written down. I still have more questions about the Oilers because they make this trade. Then they sign Milan Lucic. You might as well just do all the Oilers news in one go. Lucic is a guy who last year on LA had a great year, 55 points in 81 games. And this is a guy who's been a solid 55 to 60 point guy for the last few seasons. Actually, like the year before in Boston was sort of a down year for him, only 44 points. Before that, he had 59. Then I guess a down year before that, 60. So I don't know. He's been up and down, always around a 55, 60 point player. At least that's the way I see him. Now he says the reason why he signed in Edmonton was mainly because he wants the opportunity to play with Connor McDavid. And obviously that's a, a good reason to sign considering some of the players Connor McDavid seemed to carry last year. So what would you project as Lucic's upside for this season being? If he got 55 points last year on a good line right he was playing with Andre Kopitar if he jumps up now to play with Connor McDavid do you think he's more of like can he get 60 like are you confident in 60 65 how high can Lucic go feel pretty good about him I gotta say if you're in a hits league he's gonna go quickly he's gonna go like he did back in you know his 60 point season days in like 2011 12 2012 13 when he was in his prime that's where his value is at right now let's look at it this way Patrick Maroon scored at a rate of about one and a half points per 60 minutes this year uh, on the whole. But if you isolate just his time with McDavid, he was scoring over three points per 60 minutes, more than double the rate. And I picked Maroon because he's also sort of a heavy forward who's a big frame and throws his body around a little bit. But Lucic is better than Patrick Maroon. I'll give him that much. And the Oilers are definitely, like I was saying about Larson, I feel like they really need to put their money where their mouth is with all the moves they've made this offseason, they're going to want to give Lucic every opportunity to succeed. He has a career high of 62 points. I think this season, playing with Connor McDavid, if he gets to stay there, he's a good bet to match or beat that. Wow, so that's great. Like, definitely, if you're in a hits league, you've got to grab Lucic. And even if not, hopefully people will be looking at him as a 55-point player and you could draft him a little bit late, but maybe not. If you're saying, it sounds like you're saying kind of a floor of 60 points, assuming he gets put in that good position, which there's no reason to think he won't. Edmonton's depth chart, once again, will be very interesting. We'll see if that line ends up being like McDavid, Eberly, and Lucic. And then maybe then you have Nugent Hopkins with... Uh, pull Jujarvi if he makes the team and then you have Yakupov and Dreisaitl and Maroon like you mentioned and Pouliot you have all these guys that have been in the top six before so we'll have to follow and see how it all shakes out but there's a lot of potential fantasy gold there and let's mention one more guy on Edmonton who I would think becomes more fantasy relevant is Cam Talbot at this point because the Oilers are making moves a lot of people think that the Oilers should be better next year they traded for a defensive player that's usually good news for a goalie 
I would think, though, I guess in leagues count wins. And if they traded Taylor Hall and you say it was a bad trade, maybe that means fewer wins. But just to um, bring it into context, like Camp Talbot had a really good season last year. He had a 917 save percentage. And that was after a really bad start. It was more like a 927 or some crazy save percentage when you start only in December. So just quick thoughts and then we'll, we'll move on to another team. But I guess we've we've already established that we think the winners of all of this are like Lucic and Henrique, and we've got a loser in Leon Dreisaitl who loses Taylor Hall. But where are we putting Cam Talbot in all of this? Does he say the same for you, or does he go up for? I'd say about even. I would have loved the Oilers to take a meaningful step forward in this offseason, but I think what they did is they took away some goals scored by sending away Taylor Hall, and they also took away maybe giving up a few goals against by adding Adam Larson because he was at least a better option than, you know, their sixth defenseman, whoever he bums down the depth chart. Uh, but overall, I'd say it's a wash. I'm not sure the Oilers are significantly better this year than they are than they were last year. And my concern now is that management doesn't quite know what they're doing. I had faith in McClellan and Chiarelli, at least some in Chiarelli, going into last week. Uh, now I'm really really confused about what's happening. There was an article that came out about why Taylor Hall was traded and how a couple years ago, someone in management started leaking to a reporter that Hall wasn't good in the room and he was causing trouble. But none of that seemed to be corroborated by anything his teammates were saying publicly and or privately off the record. So it's a continues to be a terribly bizarre organization who has a very difficult time stepping forward, either stepping sideways, backwards, or twirling, twirling, as the Simpsons quote goes. Yeah, yeah. Those are the aliens. But you know what? Dauber is big on the Oilers. The way he wrote about it in one of the ramblings, he was like saying, don't think of it as Hall for Larson. Think of it as Hall for Lucic and Pulju Jarvi, and then you add Larson. Anyway, I know you're shaking your head. We need to move on. There, I think there's reason for optimism. I think that I would be comfortable drafting Cam Talbot in a league. I think he was able to get a decent save percentage last year, especially after December, even on not a great defensive team. And I think they'll be better. But okay, let's move on, if that's okay. Before we talk about our next team, I want to go to the Habs and Nashville and their trade and also the Habs and Radulov. We've got lots to get to. But first, talk about our friends over at SeatGeek. <laughs> They are our sponsor, the sponsor Keeping Carlson. It is a premier site to go to if you want to buy tickets to sporting events and concerts and all that jazz. It's really well organized. You could get rankings by value. They show you the price of the ticket right up front, exactly what it's going to be. No hidden fees at checkout. And they're even offering a special $20 rebate off your first ticket purchase to Keeping Carlson listeners. They're going to give you $20 off if you enter the offer code KEEPING at checkout at SeatGeek. When I'm looking for tickets, it is literally the URL I type in first. Not even kidding. Not just for a hockey game, for whatever event I might go to. SeatGeek is the place that I check first before anywhere else. Well, because they aggregate a lot of prices and tickets being sold on other sites. And generally, I found that they have the lowest prices. SeatGeek, keep it up. <laughs> keep it up. And hey, if the price doesn't seem that great, but if $20 off, help put in the offer code keeping. And you'll get $20 rebate off your first ticket purchase. So that's SeatGeek. Brian, let's talk about the second of three big things that happened on June 29th. We're only on June 29th. We haven't even gotten yet to all the craziness. I guess we talked about Lucic. So we've sort of been bouncing around. But we have to talk about this other trade that happened. There was like rumors going around that the Habs might trade P.K. Subban. And I remember you and I were even sort of poking fun of the news 
like the media on our Facebook group being like, why are why are they making up these rumors? Like, why would the Habs trade Subban? He's one of the best defensemen in the league. Turned out there was something to the rumors. He got moved right before the no trade clause kicked in to Nashville for Weber, another straight up trade. Shea Weber, another really solid defenseman, though we've been talking about he's sort of maybe getting a little bit older. He's past his prime while Subban's heading into his prime. Seems like a weird trade. I don't know, though. I, okay, so first of all, I guess we need to hear your take on the trade overall. In terms of the fantasy impact, though, seems to me like both of them will probably be pretty much the same. Yeah, I don't see either their fortunes changing significantly from what would have happened to them if they had stayed put. My one concern actually lies with Andre Markov, who benefited a lot from P.K. Subban playing with him. If you look at Markov's possession numbers over the last two years with and without Subban, he was on the plus side. He was seeing 52% of all shot attempts happening on the ice were in favor of the Habs when Markov was on the ice with Subban. When Markov was on the ice with somebody else without Subban over the last two years, 55% of the shot attempts on the ice were coming against the Habs. Markov's only getting older. He turns 38 this December. And I wonder if that might have an impact, not only on Markov. Absolutely. Subban leaving is going to have an impact on Markov because Shea Weber is a guy who already had some red flags of being in decline in terms of possession. I mean, that shot is as booming as ever. And his point production last year was stellar. Definitely put a lot of people in their place who said his point production was going to decline and didn't. But his possession numbers aren't terribly steady, and I don't think they're about to get any better. So that is something that's going to definitely hurt Markov. But Weber is also going to be hurt by his continued decline. I think he's going to feel it a little bit more because he's not playing with Roman Yosi anymore to help mop up whatever messes he's making. Again, not to say that Shea Weber made as many messes as a lot of people suggested he might going into last season, but he's still made a few and he's scheduled to make more as he goes further and further past his prime. So my analysis of the trade, good for Subban, same for Yosi, about the same for Weber, except if Markov can't handle the puck or they don't pair him with somebody else who drives possession as much as Yosi was able to, that might give Shea Weber fewer opportunities to score on the whole. But on the power play, that's his bread and butter, and I expect it to continue being that way. Yeah, and keep in mind that like Weber is had a very strong offensive season. He had 51 points, which is fantastic for a defenseman. That was in 78 games. PK Subban also had 51 points in 68 games, so in fewer games. And Subban, you know, had a bit of a down year. Like he's had 60 points a couple of seasons ago, 53 the year before that. So this is a guy who still has a lot of upside. I wouldn't be, like you say, like, it seems like Nashville's happy to have two defensemen who can produce. So I'm not worried about Yosi, not worried about Subban. Like you say, Weber, he's definitely going to be given the opportunity to play on the top power play, to play big minutes. So it's definitely not going to be like Shea Weber's in trouble. And, you know, he does have Markov, like you say. But aside from that, the Montreal depth chart on defense doesn't look like too, too exciting. Like you look at it and you see names like Nathan Bolio and Alexi Emelin and Jeff Petrie and... Mark Barbario. So not exactly, definitely not fantasy relevant guys. We'll see if any of them can step up, but Weber will have the opportunity. I don't know. I would say project him for like a solid 50 points again, 45 to 50 points. But I would definitely, if I was ranking the three, give me Subban for like 60, Yosi for 55 and then Weber for 50. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I might even bump up the Nashville guys a little bit. I've got a good feeling about Nashville this season. I really like what they've done in the off season. They locked down Forsberg. They acquired Subban. They seem to know what they're doing. 
mean, that was a super savvy trade on David Poyle's part to be able to take advantage of that. And also remember how he got Forsberg for Martin Erat from Washington a little while ago. Uh, so he's shown himself to be a GM who appears to know what he's doing and make good moves. He's built a pretty solid core in Nashville. I, I like what's ahead of them. And for that reason, I might give a little little bonus for Subban and Josie. Yeah, it's exciting. So he's like the GM in the league that people should start being wary about trading with because he always rips people off. That Forsberg for Martin Erat. You, you can't get much better than that. That makes Subban for Weber seem like nothing at all. That's like a regular trade compared to Forsberg for Erat. I guess so. <laughs> okay, anyways. I mean, I, I don't know. Silly I don't analogy. know how much I agree with you on that. Okay. <laughs> all right. But Montreal wasn't done with trading away their top defenseman. They brought in a pe- potentially a huge gun, a huge hired gun in Radulov, who they signed from the KHL. I'm going to read you a quote, Brian, from one of our patrons, Anthony, who was trying to project what he thinks Radulov is going to be able to do for the Habs next year. He wrote, projections say that KHL to NHL point correlation is 0.8. If we assume that's true, take his point pace from last four seasons in KHL, 238, find his point per game pace with the number of games he played over those four seasons, 181, and he has a 1.31 point per game pace in the KHL. So with the KHL-NHL correction factor of 0.8, that's a 1.05 point per game pace in the NHL, which would equate to 86 points. And even if he doesn't quite get that, you can be sure that he'll at least get a 0.85 point per game pace, which would be 70 points. So Anthony worked up, broke down the numbers. The average KHL guy is getting 0.8 in the NHL. He's been on fire above a point per game. Is he? Are we t- looking at a potential 70-point guy that you might be able to steal in your draft coming up? Or is there maybe more to this? I think there's a little more to it. And I know this happens a lot. In fact, a couple of years ago when we did our very first How Can Advanced Stats Help Me Win My Pool, I think around that time we talked about the concept of NHL equivalencies, which is what Anthony is referencing. And people have gone uh, and made an analogous point production between the NHL and other leagues, you know, pro and minor leagues around the world to say, well, a point in this league is worth this much of a point in the NHL. But the thing is, is it's not meant to be used as a predictive tool. It's not meant to say, well, if they scored 50 points in the KHL, they can score 45 in the NHL. It's actually more meant to show what a point is worth, like what that relative worth is. So what Radulov did for his KHL team last year, that's worth about... Uh, the same contribution as an 86-point guy would give his NHL team. Does that make sense? I get what you're saying. So, okay, getting back to then just the impact of this signing, like where would you draft him? And if you don't think he's a 70-point guy, I mean, last year, of course, we have this example burning in our brains of Artemi Panarin and his amazing season after coming in from the KHL. He had over 70 points. Why do you think Radulov won't do the same? I didn't say he won't do the same. I was just talking about the equivalent. Okay, well, what do you think? But, okay, I, I actually am now going to say I don't know <laughs> that he's going to be that good because he's not playing with Patrick Kane. Who's he playing with? Probably Galchenyuk. And Max Pacioretty. And help me out. And Max Pacioretty. Oh, no. Right. Well, that's horrible. But let's say they're on the first line. Okay, it's a very good line. Neither one of those guys is Patrick Kane. I'm also very concerned about the coach in Montreal, Michel Therrien, who bumped out a generational talent at defense maybe because of a personal beef or he didn't like the way, you know, he walked past him one day or the cologne he was wearing. I don't know. I, there's just very little I can trust about Montreal right now. I find it very interesting that they signed Radulov 
after how the Alex Semin thing went last year, yeah. I feel like this isn't quite a parallel situation, but it is a situation where you're bringing in a guy who is known to have driven his team a little crazy in the past and gotten a bad rap and ditched his team for the KHL, has that wing on his back, and they're bringing this guy back into the fold under a very conservative coach who I imagine will not hesitate to restrict ice time and opportunity. I, I think if Radulov is fighting something this year, that's probably the biggest thing. I don't doubt that he has the talent to score. Well, you know, I can't positively say this because I haven't seen him play in the NHL for two or three years, but I imagine that he still has the talent to be a 65, maybe plus point guy. It's just a matter of if Montreal is going to show him the patience and give him the right environment for him to thrive, which might be saying a lot if he hasn't changed his ways all that much since we last saw him in the NHL. I think he's safe for 60, and that's about where I draft him, except I think he differentiates himself a fair bit from other 60-point scores and that he does have upside for 65 or 70 if everything clicks really well. We know Pacioretty can score goals. We saw Galchenyuk just set fire to his numbers towards the latter half of last season. So if everything clicks into place, it could be a really great season for Radulov, which is why I see him where he is as a guy that I might draft around, say, Mark Stone or Jaden Schwartz. I'm just using guys that we've left in the cupful rankings lately or Milan Lucic. But he does have that extra bonus that those other guys don't have where he could end up between 65 and 70. Or it's a little more likely that he'll end up between that range than those other 60 point guys will. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like you're kind of saying he's like a bit of a high risk, high reward point guy. I, I'd like to point out Matthew's bringing up the good point in the media. They've been saying, don't worry about all those antics from before. He has a kid now. He's more mature. Who knows? We'll see what happens on the ice, obviously. But I feel like he's the kind of guy, like it's hard to get a guy that has that much upside, especially if you're getting into the fourth or fifth round of your draft, someone who could maybe get you 70 points if he if these equivalencies uh mean mean anything which you say they probably shouldn't which i know you've already said it it's okay another thing though that i think is interesting is we don't know for sure what the lines are going to be in montreal and the way i see it last year placanic finally got bumped from the top line and they had a really good thing going with galchenyuk patcheretti and gallagher near the end even though there's always injuries so i don't even know how often the three of them got to play together but you know i see four guys that we want to see get points on Montreal, Galchenyuk, Pacioretty, Radulov, and this Brendan Gallagher. Gallagher and Radulov are both right wings. So this is probably going to depend a lot on who gets to play with Pacioretty. And this might be like bad for Gallagher, who has been in a really good spot these last couple of years. And we've been waiting for him to break out. He was kind of having a breakout last year until he got injured, but he was doing really well before that. I guess we're just going to have to kind of see how the lines shake out. But if you're saying, as someone who's kind of a doubter, that Radulov is good for at least 60 and he has upside, that's pretty exciting. I think he's the kind of guy you roll the dice on, especially since he's only 30 years old. He's not over the hill yet. And we have a mention in the live chat, because this is a live show, Vanek was another guy brought into Montreal who struggled a little bit while he was there. And this, the possibility is still there, but I think the upside is very exciting. If you want to swing for the fences, Radulov is a good guy to go with. If you want to stay conservative and you're afraid of that, I'm not saying it's impossible that he only ends up with 50 points. In fact, I think there's a decent likelihood. Uh, he just needs, again, the right situation uh, to thrive. And I'm still concerned that he won't get that in Montreal, but they've committed to him only for a year, but still they committed to him. And I'm hoping that they will give him the same opportunities that, say, Edmonton is giving to Milan Lucic. Okay. All right. So let's move on now to another team. There's so much to talk about. You mentioned Vanek, the newly signed Detroit Red Wing. 
Tomasz Vanek. I don't know if we wanted to go to him. He's not the most fantasy relevant, but since you brought him up, let's just quickly say he's someone who obviously really struggled last year on Minnesota. He's more the Semin. If we're going to talk about someone who is like Alexander Semin, I would say it's Vanek, someone who was getting benched pretty consistently, and now he's getting like another another lease on life. Uh, do you think Vanek still has in him to be like a 30-40 goal guy? Or do you think he's now at this point just going to be kind of a depth player on the Red Wings and you wouldn't want to draft him? And I guess I guess since I brought uh, it up, no, let me also just say the Red Wings also signed N- Nielsen. I don't know if you want to bring that up also. We could just get all the Red Wings thoughts. It would be a tall order. I think Detroit has a decent top six without him, or at least they'd consider it. Just an applicator could conceivably take Vonick's spot. On the in in the top six, based on how Detroit seems to value him, 30, 40 goals, forget about it. I don't think you want to draft him hoping for that. If you draft Thomas Vanek, you're hoping that he can be a Detroit reclamation project. The difference between Vanek and Semin, off the top of my head, is that Semin didn't work out in Carolina, then he didn't work out in Montreal. But Vanek has worked out, to some extent, well, with Buffalo, and then with the Islanders, and then with the Habs for a little bit. Uh, and now I think he's got an opportunity in a brand new situation to do something new with Detroit. Something never really seemed to get off the ground for him in Minnesota. Same thing with a lot of scores in Minnesota. Things just haven't really happened there offensively for a lot of guys that we've expected to break out. And also, say, a guy like Zach Parisi who hasn't been able to keep up the numbers that he was putting up in New Jersey. Now, agent injuries, of course, come into play, which also comes into play for Vonick. He's an older guy than the Thomas Vanek who scored 30 or 40 goals in a year. I think you'd be really happy with like 50 points from him this year. I'm very curious to see where he slots into the Detroit lineup. Okay. Yeah, if he can make the top six, he might be a good guy to just grab off a free agency if he wasn't drafted or just draft near the end. You could always drop him. No one's rushing to draft Thomas Vanek, and he does have upside as well. He's done it before. He's 32. This is obviously like the show me year. Like, does he have anything left? Or is it pretty much over? Like, so who would you take if you had to choose between Thomas Vanek and Franz Nielsen if you if you really wanted to draft a Detroit Red Wing? Nielsen's a guy who also like he had a decent like underrated fantasy season last year. He ended up with 52 points in 81 games. Do you see him being able to be around a 50 point guy again next year on the Red Wings? Or do you see him like maybe trailing off a little bit now that I mean he was playing with Kyle Ocposo, was really good, and we're definitely gonna get to him next. But yeah, I'm curious to hear your take on him and that signing. Let's keep in mind that Nielsen is generally more of a 45, 50-point player. His 52 points last year was his second highest total in his career. Uh, he could do it again. I mean, he was able to pick up 20 points on the power play last season. I don't know if he factors as highly into the Red Wings power play as he did in Long Island. So that would be potentially a mark against him, depending on how things start shaking out in training camp. One thing he does have going for him is he's still assured a top six spot. The Red Wings are not particularly strong down the middle. You know, if they play Zetterberg at center on the top line, then it's Franz Nielsen. Uh, I suppose Dylan Larkin, maybe they could shift around a little bit. Not sure exactly what they have planned, but I think at least he's probably got a top six spot. What you're looking for him to hit 50 points is a lot of power play opportunities. If he doesn't get that, uh, he's more of a 40, 45 point guy for me. Yeah, you're right. He was on the, I believe he was on the top power play last year for the Islanders. So that was a great opportunity for him. And it's not the same. He's not going to be able to play with a John Tavares. Uh, but you know who will get to play with John Tavares? I still do want to talk about the Red Wings, but we, let's let's get the big names out of the way. Andrew Ladd, 
now going to the Islanders. The Islanders lose Ocposo. Brian, you choose. Who do you want to talk about first, Ocposo or Andrew Ladd? I guess we can start with Ladd because I think a lot of people expect him to just sort of step into Ocposo's shoes and do about the same thing Ocposo was doing. So I'm not sure that that's going to happen. One, he's older than Ocposo. We've spent a lot of time in the Facebook group, especially talking about how the age curve for forward seems to indicate a peak between the ages of 22 and 26 years old. And then believe it or not, it's a slow decline, 27, 28. And by the time you get to like 31, 32, you're really on your last leg, so to speak. Andrew Ladd, and I'm double checking this as I say this, but I believe he's going to be, yeah, he's turning 31 in December, um, which is older than Okposo's ever been because Ladd was born before Okposo. That's how the world works. And last year, we saw him slow down even in a decent situation. I mean, he was taken out of the top six in Winnipeg for a good chunk of the year, which hurt him. He also saw less power play time than he was used to. But he also did less with the time that he did have in both those situations. More of his shots were getting blocked on their way to the net. There's not like a big giant red flag where I can say this is exactly where it went wrong. Like his shooting percentage wasn't abnormally low. I honestly think this is just the start of a decline for Andrew Ladd, a guy who I've loved in fantasy for a very long time as being an underrated pick. In fact, I definitely expected more than 46 points from him last season. And mind you, he did that all with a 13.8% shooting success rate, which was like the second highest he's had in the last five years. So I'm not terribly optimistic about Andrew Ladd in Long Island so far as him coming in and doing what Okposa was doing. I would hope for 50 or 55 from him if I'm being conservative. Yeah, the thing with Andrew Ladd, first of all, like I know you've loved him for a while and he's been like a solid fantasy player for sure. But that being said, it's not as if he's ever, like he had 60 points, I believe like once in his career, he broke 60, which was a couple seasons ago in Winnipeg, he had 62. Aside from that, he's always been under 60. Last year, only the 46 points. But you know, maybe he's like a 50 to 55, maybe to 60 point guy. And now he's like 30 years old. So he's also on the other side of this curve. He just signed a seven year deal, which seems pretty wild that the Islanders would give seven years to Andrew Ladd, who already was showing to be not as useful to the Chicago Blackhawks as they thought he would be when they traded for him. So we'll see. And, you know, also being John Tavares' line mate, if you're not Kyle Ocposo, it hasn't been the guarantee for points that we kind of always assumed it would be. Like whenever Anders Lee got there or Ryan Strom or whoever else got a turn to play with John Tavares. It's not as if these guys completely broke out. One guy who actually did play really well with John Tavares a couple of years ago on the Islanders was P.A. Parento, who interestingly enough has now been brought back to the Islanders. I could see him like teaming back up with John Tavares and he might actually be the guy who can have a surprising breakout. And, you know, he had 41 points last year with the Leafs, which isn't too shabby. He has had 67 points playing with John Tavares and the Islanders back in 2011. Like, uh, obviously, people are going to be drafting Andrew Ladd ahead of P.A. Parento, but I wonder if you just wait on Ladd. I consider maybe a bit too much of a red flag. I'm a little bit concerned. I don't know if he's going to be able to stay on that top line, but I might late in the draft grab P.A. Parento. I think I'd want Parento over Vanek if we're talking about someone else that we talked about recently. He wouldn't be a bad sleeper, if only for the reason that there's not a whole lot going on on that right side in Long Island. Like, there really has ever been beyond Ocposo. Now that Ocposo's gone, it's wide open. It could be Parento... Josh Bailey, someone who's gone up and down a bunch in the last few years. Ryan Strom, I don't know if Capuano gives him another shot to stick with uh, John Tavares and get those big minutes. 
So for that reason, Elon, just by process of elimination, maybe Pia Parento does get some pretty good minutes with John Tavares. Not somebody I've been a high pick on, but last year he had an underrated season with a very weak Maple Leafs team, not often playing with very good players, still managed 41 points. If you're in a deeper league, he's probably worth a look in the much later rounds. Not as like your typical sleeper, you know, you usually look at the young guy who might be able to break out this season, but as more of a reliable veteran journeyman who you can probably count on for 40, 40 to 45 uh, if given the right situation. And I think he's probably being brought to Long Island to play a top six role. I don't know where else he'd fit into that lineup. Yeah, well, also the thing is, you know, we're talking now we're in the summer, so we're talking about drafts. And, you know, it's hard to draft people because you don't know, like, where they're going to play necessarily. So maybe you want to go with a more sure thing, like someone who's for sure, like Andrew Ladd's for sure going to be playing on the top line, or at least for the first little bit, unless he, like, earns his way out of the top line. But definitely if you're in a league that's maybe not super deep and Parento doesn't get drafted, he's the kind of guy who, if I see the, you know, on Roto World that, like, in the morning skate, he's been playing with Tavares and he might be jumping to the top line, he's the kind of guy I would just jump on take the preemptive flyer on and see how he does on the top line. Like if you don't have him watch to see if he gets on the top line, but okay. I'm I'll, I can segue right into this. Speaking of the guy who, you know, he can't replace and Lad can't replace Kyle Poso is setting off on his own. Everybody knows him as somebody who's played with Tavares like his whole career and wondered, ah, is he really good? Or is he just in the right place at the right time? Kyle Poso is obviously not as good away from John Tavares as he is with John Tavares, but who is? Like, that's not an indictment of Kyle Poso because he is still, like, a top 50 forward. If you look at his rate stats over the last few years, still hangs out around the top 50 forwards in points per 60 minutes. And keep in mind, like, he did have an opportunity back in 2013-14 when Tavares got injured. I think he missed about 20, 25 games. Poso was incredible, did very well for himself when everybody thought he was left for dead because Tavares was gone. He actually produced on his own in that scenario better than he ever did over longer periods with Tavares. But that was the exception to the rule. He generally was like a top 20 producer when he was playing with Tavares. And again, uh, he's more like a top 50 producer when playing away. He was used to seeing like 65, 70 points with Tavares. You have to take a few of those away now that they're apart for good. However, and Elon, I'm sure you're ready to leap in with this. His next centerman is going to be the Ryan O'Reilly or Jack Eichel, both very good situations for him to find himself in. Now, he's still closer to 30 than he is to 25, so you also have to factor in a little bit of age-related decline in his numbers. I think he's a solid bet for 60 points. He could get up to 65 if the season goes well for him. I think 70 would be a real stretch, even if you do make the argument that Eichel or O'Reilly can provide you know, a good chunk of what Tavares did for Ocposo in Long Island, although I would argue you on that argument. I don't think Eichel's there yet, and I don't know that O'Reilly ever will be. Uh, but again, safe bet for 60, hopefully 65. Well, so it kind of just reminds me of the conversation we had about Radulov, where we were comparing him to Panarin, and then you were saying, well, Panarin was playing with Patrick Kane, and Radulov's only going to be playing with Pacioretty and Galchenyuk. And it's like, those are really good line mates, but they're not Patrick Kane. And like, you know, Eichel or O'Reilly as the centerman and then don't forget also like maybe evander kane or matt molson who matt molson his former friend on the new york islanders so who knows how that will shake out 
Oh man. Or Sam Ryan. I think Sam Reinhardt is the more possible, although, you know, he might be on the right side, so it could not turn out that yeah, way. No. I wouldn't be overly excited about playing with Matt Molson unless you just brought it in there so we could continue drawing our social web of the NHL. <laughs> well, I definitely did bring it up for that reason, but I did see an article <laughs> about how they're excited to play together again. We'll see if they actually get the opportunity. Uh, but okay, so I agree with you. Like I could see a 60 point like sort of floor for Ocposo seems like he's in a good situation. He had, you know, more than that last year, not playing with Tavares, like you said. So if you had to pick, cause you kind of said the same thing about Radulov. That's why I brought him up. Who would you draft higher? Radulov or Ocposo? Kyle Ocposo. I don't, I don't have to think about it too hard. Even like, I know the upside's there for Radulov. I just can't get too excited about a guy who hasn't been in the league for a couple of years and is coming into a potentially tenuous situation. Uh, Okposo, I feel, is a bit more of a steadier choice. Perhaps Radulov, I don't know if he even has more upside. I'm going with Okposo. Who would you go with? Uh, I guess I'd go with Okposo also. I'd go with the safer choice. But I'm excited about Radulov. But Okposo seems like the kind of guy that he's going to get drafted around where he should be. Like, I'll be excited to see when all of the pre-rankings come for, like, ESPN and Yahoo and Fantrax. Ooh, we should say something about Fantrax before we end the show. Uh, remind us in the chat room to tell you something about fan tracks. Uh, but Kyle Ocposo, he's a guy that's probably, like you say, going to get around 60, 65 points. I don't see him getting much higher. I don't see him getting much lower. Hopefully he can stay healthy. Last year he stayed healthy, played 79 games, which was great. The two years before that he was injured for quite a few games. So we'll see if he can stay steady. Radulov's also old. So it, it'll be fun to see what happens over in Buffalo. I hope they'll take that next step. They, uh, like Edmonton, I guess, you know, they have like some really strong promising forwards, but we don't really know about the defense. Also, I would be more concerned with their goalie, like Robin Leonard is their starter. And even if he stays healthy, we still don't even know if he can handle the job of being a starting number one goalie. They've lost now. Let's see if I can remember this. So they've lost Chad Johnson, who went to Calgary, ooh, who I do want to talk about next. They've lost Chad Johnson. They brought in Nilsson Schmilson. From the Oilers, like all the backups have changed teams, which makes things very confusing. We're going to have to just keep track of all the new backup situations. Now, I guess that happens every year. But yeah, Buffalo's goalie situation is concerning. But it doesn't really hurt Ocposo, even if the Oilers let in a lot of goals, unless you're in a plus-minus league. And I think I said Oilers, but I mean Sabres. Yes. Yes. I agree. I, all I have to say is Leonard is, still, Leonard is still a question mark, a huge question mark. And that's going to be a big part in determining – what happens ultimately to the Buffalo Sabres this season? They do have Anders Nielsen. Uh, Linus Olmark, I think, is still bumping around the organization. He tweeted that he wouldn't be at a certain development camp because he's in Sweden still or something. I think he's still in the organization. Uh, so he or Anders Nielsen will tend net in the AHL, I suppose. Uh, but there really isn't a, a great fallback option from Robin Lehner if things don't work out for the Sabres. Yeah, so we'll see. Who cares? I don't know. I'm excited to see how the Sabres do. And I still like Rasmus Ristolainen. He's, I think, a good sleeper pick for next year because he's just got a new guy that he can pass the puck to on the power play in Kyle Ockpost. So don't forget about Rasmus Ristolainen. I like him. I don't know. Okay, Brian, one trade, actually, that I wanted to talk about. We've been doing a lot of signings, but I don't want to end the show without talking about Brian Elliott being sent to the Calgary Flames for a draft pick. To me, this is, like, a very interesting one because... 
the first of all, this is great news for Jake Allen over on St. Louis because he's been in that tandem for so long. And now finally, Jake Allen will have the opportunity to, you know, get that for sure number one spot. I think they signed Carter Hutton as the backup. I don't think he's too much of a threat to challenge. I wouldn't think so. I know you told me that you thought Hutton might be a good underrated signing. But let's just talk quickly about Jake Allen. Like, how valuable does he come in fantasy? We talked about John Gibson on Anaheim after Anderson got traded. Similar situation now where finally the tandem has been broken up. Who would you want more between like Allen and Gibson maybe as a good comparison? And like, how high do you rank Jake Allen now that he's the for sure number one goalie on St. Louis? I think my best answer is higher than before. It's a good thing to be the goalie on the St. Louis Blues, especially as long as Ken Hitchcock is coaching. It's generally a very defensive system. Uh, It's it's almost reminded of Nashville in the sense that, you know, you've seen goalies play very well uh, in limited time in Nashville and then go somewhere else in the league and not do as well. But Jake Allen just over his career has not turned heads the way a lot of us hoped he would. He's got a 915 career save percentage, which is not anything to really hang your hat on. Now last year was his best season yet. He had a 920 save percentage, but the team in front of him was incredible and did good things for Brian Elliott as well. Uh, the team in front of him is largely the same from last year. Yeah, they lose David Backus and Troy Brower for whatever that's worth. But he's obviously in a good position to succeed, pick up a bunch of wins. I think, man, it's hard because I want to say John Gibson because he is in a better, like his defense is so solid. And I think the Ducks are at least as good of a team as the Blues, maybe a little more stable. But now Randy Carlisle yeah, is behind him. the bench. So to be honest... I would rather, I don't know. I don't know. It would honestly be like gut check time at the draft. Who am I going to go with? I might go with Gibson just because I did think Carter Hutton was a good ad. I don't think he's someone that they're going to use to play in a tandem with Jake Allen the way Elliot did. But I do think that he's someone who could step in, steal a few starts away if Allen does struggle, which we've seen happen in the past. I've been burned by Allen a couple times in my fantasy career already which is why I'd probably go with the seemingly more reliable Gibson. Yeah, I like that. You know, Allen has had times where he struggled when given the ball in St. Louis. So he's not, like, Gibson has been, like, really good. Like, it's been pretty rare for him to really blow it. Like, it was just Anderson was really good, and so he deserved to get the starts that he got. I think I'd also go with Gibson. And also St. Louis, I don't know. I mean, they've, they've lost a couple of guys to free agency who you're probably going to say are not such a big deal. But, you know, Bacchus is gone. Brower has gone. Like, you look at their depth chart. They're not, like, as deep offensively as maybe we thought they were before. Of course, they have, like, Robbie Fabry, who we expect to step up. They signed David Perron. I don't know. They just don't seem to be as exciting as a team as, like, Anaheim, who I just feel like has a really strong defense. Like you say, like, offensive defensemen and, like, exciting fantasy-relevant forwards. Silverberg might step up. Like, you have these, like, second-line guys that might be able to really come into their own this season. So I would go with Gibson, but obviously this is good news. If you're an Allen owner in a keeper league, then you're very happy with this move. We should talk about the other side of the coins. Now we have Brian Elliott, journeyman Brian Elliott at this point. He's 31 years old. He's been on Ottawa. They went to Colorado, St. Louis. Great year last year with St. Louis. A 930 save percentage. When he came back from injury, he was just on fire. Stole the job from Jake Allen, who was doing just fine. Now he goes to Calgary, who's not as good of a team. Like We always think of Calgary as a team that you're scared to start the goalie on. But maybe that's just because they haven't had good goalies. Like I know you were a big fan of Hiller for a long time saying the Flames should play Hiller, but he just continued to suck and suck. And I'm sure at this point, 
you'll you'll say that he's not as good as we hope Brian Elliott can be. Like he definitely has been a while since Hiller's been putting up Elliott like numbers, but maybe it's the team. I don't know. What do you think? What do you think about Brian Elliott? Where does he rank? You know, if you're last week we talked or last episode we talked about Anderson in Toronto, another like pretty good goalie that's now going on a team that's not known for being a team you want to have a goalie on in fantasy. So like what is your take on Elliott maybe in comparison with a guy like Frederick Anderson? I think they're in about the same boat as goalies who may or may not be good, who are on teams that probably aren't very good. And I'd throw in Robin Lehner there uh, in that conversation as well. Semyon Varlamov, Craig Anderson. There's a handful of goalies who we've seen perform at times in their career, but who aren't going to get a lot of help from the teams they're playing for, which might expose their flaws. And that's the situation Brian Elliott finds himself in in Calgary, where, you know, you might think, ah, things are improving, getting better. Uh, They're moving towards being a contender. But if you look at what they've brought in and out, they've lost Hubler and Colborn. Colborn doesn't really matter. And they added Troy Brower and Alex Chason, and Chason doesn't really matter. So I'm not sure that makes them a better team based on those moves alone. Uh, They do have Monaghan and Gaudreau maturing another year, new coaching staff. So I don't know if Calgary really takes a big step forward. So they won 35 games last year. So we can use that as a starting point. And they did it with often suspect goaltending, Elon, as you mentioned, from the likes of Hiller and Ramo and Ortio. But Brian Elliott doesn't necessarily solidify that situation all that surely because, you know, we saw what he did in the playoffs and most of last season, putting up amazing numbers, out-dueling Jake Allen, as you said, But if we zoom out of his whole career, he played about 140 games over the first four years of his career between Ottawa and Colorado before he joined St. Louis. He was a 903 goalie in those four years, 140 games played. Over the next five years, during which he played 180 games, he had a 925 save percentage, 20 points better in just 40 games more. So like comparable sample sizes, but wildly different results. So one reason for that could be, and I've already alluded to it, that Ken Hitchcock had a really goalie-friendly system and had it set up where most goalies could step into St. Louis and succeed. That might make me worried about what the system that Elliott's stepping into will be. We know Calgary has a decent back end, but they're a new head coach, Glenn Gulotson, and they just added Dave Cameron and somebody else. Neither of those guys have a great reputation from their prior coaching stints. You could also look at the theory that goalies don't improve, which is very popular among some goalie analysts uh, in the statistics community, in the online goalie Twitter analytics. I'm just trying to throw in some buzzwords mm. there, even though we don't use them, because we are we are the buzzword Elon here at Keeping Carlson. Oh. Anyway, goalies don't improve is often a mantra stated. And if goalies don't improve and you believe in that, then Elliot certainly did not flip in from a 903 goalie into a 925 goalie overnight. On the other hand, if you do believe that goalies can improve, then maybe that's what happened. There's a lot of unknowns here is what I'm getting at. I don't know. I watched Brian Elliott play a lot while he was in Ottawa and he had flashes of brilliance, but surrounded by stretches of mediocrity. It never seemed like he could put a really thorough stretch together. In fact, the only season in his career where he's played more than 50 games, he finished that year with an 893 save percentage. He's going to have that kind of workload in Calgary. I'm not sure if he could handle a smaller one or a heavier one yet, which is why there's that big question mark above his head the same way that I've got one above the likes of Frederick Anderson and Robin Lehner. Yeah, I mean, this whole goalies can't improve. I assume that's based on some advanced stats 
that you could tell us about maybe in another episode at some point. Like, it seems to me like people should be able to improve, like get a new goalie coach, learn a couple new tricks. I think of any position, goalies, it's such like a mental game. I remember there was all that stuff last year about how Reimer was using this new technique of how he watches the puck. Ah, I don't know. But Elliot was good, though. Calgary does have a decent backup also. They got Chad Johnson, so it's not as if they need to really lean on Elliott. Chad Johnson, you know, after being pretty brutal with Buffalo two seasons ago, last year when he came in when Leonard was injured, 920 save percentage. Not too shabby. Um, you're saying he is shabby. Okay. Chad Johnson can't improve. I'm shaking my head. I'm nodding my head. Wait, shaking my head. I'm shaking my head vigorously. Chad Johnson is okay. Yeah. Like, he's a backup goalie. He's a number two goalie. He's not somebody that you want to come in and take over the reins for your team for an extended amount of time. Although, granted, Elon, yeah, he did have that 920 last year. The year before, he was an 889. But the year before that, he was a 925 in 27 appearances. So I suppose maybe he could do it. But honestly, I think if he plays that well, it's more of a fluke. And it is a show of true talent. I feel like he's about an average NHL backup goalie, and I don't know that he's a great safety net for the Flames to have. I know that's not like a key point to what you're making, but you know, I just can't let huh. anything slide. That's fair. All right. So I, I feel like I still don't have a good answer. Maybe there just isn't one right now of like, where do we rank? We're going to do a Schmore Goalies episode, of course, in a couple of months as the season approaches. We'll have time to really look into where we want to draft a guy like Brian Elliott. I think it's an intriguing situation. I know you say you're not too excited about what Calgary's done, but you know, they do have some exciting pieces on their team, like a strong depth chart on defense with Giordano and Brody and Dougie Hamm. Hamilton, Dennis Weidman is like, okay, I guess, you know, and they have, like you say, Monaghan and Gojo, Sam Bennett's going to improve. So I could see them being a decent team that could score some goals. We'll have to see how they can do defensively, but hopefully that's where Brian Elliott comes in. Hopefully he can put up a high save percentage. If your league count saves, maybe he can make a lot of saves. We'll see. Sticking up Calgary really quickly though. They signed Troy Brower, who I know you say like, isn't that much, isn't that great. Sure, maybe it's not so great for Calgary, but as someone who could jump on a line to play with Johnny Gojo and Sean Monaghan, I'd have to think that this is a great opportunity for Troy Brower. Is he someone you would potentially take a chance on in fantasy and draft? Like he had 39 points last year in 82 games, so not fantasy relevant. And he was playing, I guess, sometimes on St. Louis with some okay players. But now, if he plays on that top line, like how can he not? Like Other lesser guys have done really well playing with Gojo and Monaghan, right? And plus, he could maybe get on the top power play. What if he plays with Gojo, Monaghan, and Giordano and Brody? Could be good. Yuri Hoodler is the guy who, you know, saw the most success with those guys. Yeah. And the thing with Troy Brower is that he's not quite Yuri Hoodler, which it's a weird thing to have to say about somebody that they're not as good as Yuri Hoodler, even though Hoodler did have that fantastic season. Last season wasn't great. But the point I'm trying to make is that Troy Brower, I don't know that he can keep up with those two guys. His career high is 43 points. He's never been in a top line scoring role before. And I think there's a reason for that so you know some people might say well he's never had the opportunity to do this and I would counter with yeah you're right he's never been given the opportunity to do this uh, the flames are fairly weak on the right side right now so it might almost be him by default but the way that I saw Gojo Monahan and Hoodler moving the puck between each other with so much speed and yeah I just don't know that Brower is somebody who can step in mm-hmm. and participate in that as well as we've seen others do so he might be a guy that I might look at maybe around PA Parento levels. Uh, he's not somebody I'm going to jump at immediately, although you might like his power play time because, like I said, there aren't a ton of offensive weapons right now in Calgary. Elon, you said there's Monahan, Goudreau, 
Hopefully, yeah. and then it takes. Well, Andreas is pointing out also if front, you're in a multi-county, you get a lot of hits out of Troy Brower. So if he's a guy who had some value to you already, like he's not going to be worse. I, I can't see him being worse than his like 39 points that he had last year. And maybe he could jump in a bit more. Maybe hit 45. You know, 50 is probably the ultimate upside. I'm saying that's the ceiling. It's possible if he's on the top line, Brian. Don't shake your head. Anyone could get 50 points if he plays the whole season on the top line with those guys. The more panicked Elon is sounding throughout this episode for people just listening to the audio, the more vigorously I am shaking my head. There's been a lot of cues from my from my head nodding and shaking and hand going up. You probably You're stressing it. me out, Brian. Elon's voice. Come, All right. come join us it's, uh, I guess time. it's already like almost time to end the show. One more free agent signing requested by the chat. So let us know in the chat which signing you want to talk us to talk about. We'll definitely... Uh, talk about all the rest of them. As I'm going to tell you the schedule coming up while you guys come up with who you want us to talk about. Coming up, okay, if you're a patron of Keeping Carlson, we've got a patron cast coming this Sunday, a brunch patron cast, 11 a.m. If you want to join us live, you could pay any amount of money to become a patron of Keeping Carlson. Go to keepingcarlson.com slash patron during the summer. Join us for our patron cast where we'll just cover every question you have. We already have a bunch of questions in the Facebook group, which I'm sorry we didn't get to here, but we're going to get to everything on the Patreon cast. We won't end it till all the questions are answered. Then we also will have another episode in a couple of weeks. I guess we'll announce that soon, probably like on a Sunday. Then big announcement. If you become a patron Keeping Carlson, we're going to be restarting the Cupful next year. So everyone who earned their spot in the Cupful last year, the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League, that's going to be going again next year. If you earned your, earned your way into a tier last year, you're going to be competing for the Ultimate Championship potentially. But if not, you could join, start at the bottom tier, climb your way up. And the big announcement is we've just made a deal with Fantrax and they're going to be hosting the Cupful this season. So big news. We're very excited. We're going to be using Fantrax Premium. We're going to have all of their awesome features at our our disposal we're going to get into that in future episodes once we decide which ones we want to use but we're going to be able to use all these cool like composite categories like a goalie wins category will be made up of like two points for a win and one point for an overtime loss which i think is much more valuable you got to give something for these overtime losses it's going to be very exciting all this coming up if you want some information go to keepingcarlson.com slash patron you can email us tweet at us at keeping carlson okay final player to talk about looks like i'm seeing erickson Brian, how does that sound for you? Louis Erickson goes to the Vancouver Canucks. It's kind of like a Calgary situation, right? But I think Erickson's a little bit better than Troy Brower, but he's probably going to jump right into the top line playing with Daniel Sedin and Henrik Sedin, who we talked about, I guess, a couple of episodes ago as maybe they had a, definitely a down year after having an up year the year before. But you were saying that the Sedins, it kind of depends if they have someone else to play with. Louis Erickson, not a bad option. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I believe it was like between 50 and 60 points last season. He seems to be a guy who can slot in pretty well. So what do you think, just for as far as Erickson goes, do you think this is a good place for him? And does his fantasy value go up moving to Vancouver? Or is it bad because like he's moving to Vancouver, who's, you know, not a strong offensive team aside from the Sedins? So he did spend a lot of time last season playing on the left side he'd have to flip to the right side almost permanently to be able to play with center Henrik and left wing Daniel if he does do that that's great news for him obviously we don't have to go too deep in our analysis and I think that works out well for the Sedins as well that is somebody who has a shot who can move the puck who is a competent NHLer Uh, that's pretty much all they need that's what it says on the job description Louis Erickson can fill that role But last year, a lot of people thought that was his awakening, his rise, and that's what he's being rewarded for in this free agent period. But last year, something interesting happened. He had lower shot attempt rates, both blocked shots 
and, and unblocked shots. So both Corsi and Fenwick. So that means that he took fewer shot attempts on the hole, and he also took fewer unblocked, specifically, shot attempts. But his shots on goal rate stats actually went up. So even though he put fewer attempts towards the net, he actually was more accurate, I suppose, in the attempts that he did put on net to register a shot on goal. I don't know if there's much to read into that. In fact, I would be more concerned that his blocked and unblocked shot attempts both went down in his rates. His five-on-five points per 60 minutes, that was the highest he posted last season since 2011-2012. And his shooting percentage was the second highest in his career reaching heights it hadn't seen since 2008-2009, when, back when he was still a Dallas star. So all this to say, regression is due. What Louis Erickson did last season was impressive, but it's not something that he is a sure shot to repeat or even necessarily come close to. Uh, and also playing for the Canucks is not a good place to be if you're not with the Sedin. So his value takes a hit just by virtue of playing for Vancouver, because who else can he hope to play with? Brandon Sutter? Bo Horvat. I mean, you hope that the guy can get some power play time and take advantage of it to make up for the inevitable drop-off that he's going to see at five-on-five, not playing with Marchand and Krejci. And that whole line saw a little bit of luck last year, but Louis Erickson was definitely a part of that. Um, 55 points would be a pretty big success in my books for Louis Erickson coming into this season, given the circumstances he's in. Keep in mind last year, of course, the two top scorers in Vancouver were the Sedins. The next best was Bo Horvat checking in with 40 points. So I would hope for Erickson to hit 50, I guess. And uh, hopefully he doesn't become this year's Radim Verbata. I mean, Radim Verbata, was he signed for a one-year deal last year? With the Canucks, or is he still going to be there? He didn't even play like that much near the end of the year. I think, no, he's our unrestricted free agent right now. So he's not currently... Uh, signed by the Vancouver Canucks. Who knows? That right side does look very weak. And you would think they'd give Louis Erickson a chance to play with the Sedins. Like Andreas is mentioning here in the chat, add to our friend connection that Louis Erickson has played with the Sedins in international hockey. So they're probably friends. So I'm sure they'll play together. But you're right. Like that 63 points last season, I said between 50 and 60. So he actually had a really amazing year, 30 goals, 33 assists. But you say it was a high shooting percentage. He actually wasn't taking as many shots. Now he's going to, you know, go down in terms of playing on a weaker team. Hope The Sedins are also, you know, not the sure thing to help you get points they used to be. And like you say, like just ask Radim Verbata. Okay, so that's useful to know. You don't think that Erickson is going to repeat his 62 points. Let other people jump on him because of him playing with the Sedins. Maybe you could project him more for like 55 if he falls to that range. And that would be the high side for me. I wouldn't want to go any higher than 55 for him next season. Hoping he proves me wrong. But before last season, like he got 63 points. But before that, he was not setting the world on fire. In fact, I think he let a lot of pulleys down when he moved from Dallas as like a previous 70-point guy. But he got those seasons in his prime. And then he moved to Boston as he exited his prime and started putting up significantly lower numbers. And Elon, before I forget, you also missed a friend connection earlier in the show. Adam Henrique oh, and Taylor Hall. So they're for sure. Okay. Buddies. They Sign me up for Adam Henrique. We haven't ranked him yet in the Keevan Carlson patron rankings that we've been doing every day. I'm voting for him tomorrow. I could see him getting 65 points playing with Taylor Hall, his, his good friend. Okay. Wait a second. They didn't play college hockey together. But okay. they played for the Windsor Spitfires together. They played somewhere I'll together. Must have been with something. the Spitfire. <laughs> okay, 60 points. 
No, but they did. This has been a fun together. episode. Thanks everyone in the chat for joining us. <laughs> I threw out that whole blurb about the patron thing, so I won't do that again. But check it out, keepingcarls.com slash patron patron cast this Sunday, brunch patron cast. Hope you could join us. Then we've got our Twitter account at Keeping Carlson. Tweet us, let us know what you thought about the show. You could also ask us, you know, if you have questions about your team, just because it's the summer, we're happy to answer. If anything, we'll get to you faster because we don't have as many questions coming in. So if you want to ask us about a keeper decision between two guys or something, we'd be happy to help. Then if you wanted to help us out, you could give us a five-star review on iTunes. Always very much appreciated. Dauber Hockey, they're amazing. Brian, let's cue that outro music in post-production. And watch you read us the credits. All right, this episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dabra Hockey and supported by our patrons. It was researched with help from Hockey Analysis, Hockey Reference, Hockey Database, Corsica Hockey, Own the Puck, Hero Charts, Roto World, Yahoo Sports, and ESPN Fantasy Hockey. And I also need to add this week, well, Dabra Hockey, of course, and the Cult of Hockey blog, Jonathan Willis's article specifically, and NHL numbers. Uh, Kim Lewis had a good article back in February about why the Habs would be foolish to <laughs> trade PK Subban. I guess they okay. didn't read it. Thanks, everyone, and great job, Brian. I'll chat with you during brunch on Sunday. Bye, everyone. <laughs>